Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And I am yet another host, Dax. Each episode, we talk about a facet of video game history, uh, and one of us tells the other a story, and the other person has no idea what we're going to talk about. Yeah, I have no idea. But first, what have you been up to? I am. <laughs> I'm so busy. <laughs> I'm so busy. Usually I have fun gaming things to talk about. Um, but I, I'm just in this work gauntlet right now. And so really all I've done is lay around and play a little bit of Pokemon here and there. Um, I'm trying to complete to those of you who play Pokemon, I'm trying to complete what they call a living Dex, meaning that I collect all of the Pokemon and, um, I have a copy of each of them in my, my bank or whatever. And that way I can just drag and drop the whole thing into games. And then I have a completed Pokedex. It's something I've been working on since college. Do you know the fan theory about how the Pokecenter works? No, I do not. That you, 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 that when you go there and the balls get put into the chamber and they disappear for a second. Mm -hmm. And when they come back out, what happens is that they go into this backlog of the Pokecenter, they get shredded and they just put, <laughs> put new Pokemon in and give them new ones, <laughs> which are healthy again. <laughs> Uh, I, I think it would be an interesting spin on that would be like the, um, the cloning machines from FTL, right. That save a copy of yeah. you at that time. That would be <laughs> yes. kind of fun. Yeah. I like the fan theory that the Pokédex is, um, just written by 10 year olds because none of it makes any sense. Right. <laughs> no, like it'll it be like, it can shoot, it could shoot water out of its fingers at Mach 3. And then I like fucking look up Mach 3 and I'm like, yeah, that's like, that's like when you, that's like 2,600 miles an hour and you could cut steel with that. <laughs> like, you know, like it, everything would be dead, right? Like, oh, its surface temperature is hotter than the sun. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like you die. <laughs> like, you know what it's I mean? Like, absolutely written by 10 year olds that we're yeah. getting too much freedom about writing lexica on anything. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it's the scariest critter to ever live, and people scream when they get near it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, that's like what a 10 year old would write about that. Like, <laughs> yeah. I believe it. Oh, um, so, what's up with you, dude? How are things? Oh, okay, I'm just studying a lot, but I'm also preparing a new D&D campaign Ooh. for my crew, which is nice. I always like to do that. You want to talk a little bit about it? I'm interested. I'll be playing Dragons of Ice Spire Peak, which is a classic D&D campaign, pretty standard. You're in a mining town. Mining town gets annoyed by monsters a lot, so you got to beat up monsters a lot. Sounds like classic D&D. &D. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd be happy to hear how that goes. I um. I have to live vicariously through other people who get to role play. So if anyone would like to contact us, how would they do that? The easiest way would be to send us an email at codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. We do read your emails. You can also find us on Twitter at codexrexpodcast. And you can find me, I'm just Vegan Tyler on Twitch, and I stream three days a week. By saying we read your emails, it means Tyler reads your emails and then tells me about them. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do all of the front end stuff for the podcast. Yes, Fox he does. does he does all the work. Stuff. I do the back end stuff and he does the front end stuff. You know what? Maybe one of these days if I learn editing, <laughs> then then it will expose what you actually do. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can just be replaced. Oh, no. <laughs> You could never be replaced, Dux. <laughs>
So just before we start, the last episode mm-hmm. basically leads up to this episode. Yeah, the last episode was on the creation of electronic arts, and we talked a lot about a person named Trip Hawkins. He is going to show up again in this story, and the reason that I crafted it this way is because I thought that the background information about the creation of EA was important to understanding the story that I wanted to tell today. And so um, if you don't listen to that episode, that's okay. You can still have some fun with this one. But listening to the previous one will help you to have context in this one. Do we want to start the episode? Let's do it. Let's do it, do it. Okay, what's what's going on? What's what's the next step for this story? Our story begins with a man named Robert J. Michael, or RJ, as people typically call him. He was born in 1956 and claims that even from a young age, he was always interested in technology. According to him, he built his first video game, an electronic tic-tac-toe player, in 1970 at the age of 14. After high school, he went to college, and we know that he graduated from the University of Illinois in 1979. He majored in computer science and English with a minor in philosophy. So in 1983, um, he gets out of college, and he gets a job working at a place called, well, Let me rephrase. He graduated college in 1979 and he worked in the industry for a bit. But then in 1983, he gets a job working at a place called Williams Electronics, which was known for making popular arcade games at the time. Now, I couldn't find a ton of info about what he did there, but we do know that he worked on the hit arcade game Sinistar, which released that year. Have you ever heard of Sinistar, Docs? It rings a bell, but I am unsure. Explain this to me. Okay, so the gist of Sinistar is that you are piloting a spaceship, and it's like a 2D top-down thing, and you're shooting asteroids, and you shoot these asteroids, and you gather these crystals. You need to collect all these crystals to turn the crystals into bombs, and then you use those bombs to defeat the like the end game boss and the, the 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 boss is this huge like skull ship called the sinistar and it yells creepy stuff at you um which is kind of like where it got it's like cult following or these are these um lines and so each time you beat the boss you go to a harder level and you repeat the process with some like little alterations or like ways to make it harder and it'll scream things and it'll go beware i live run coward i hunger run 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 so um okay so here's a picture of what the sinistar looked like oh it looks like it has a cross in the background a steel cross uh and then it's a bit like a lion skull Yeah, it's a good way to put it. But it also could be like a samurai's mask. Interesting. So RJ, we know, was responsible for most of the explosions and sound effects. And this was a pretty popular game, um, for, but it had like a very limited run. My dad, uh, I first learned about this game from my dad. Actually, he loved this game and he used to talk about playing it in the arcade uh, all the time. 
Fun fact, it was the first arcade game to have stereo sound, and it had multiple soundboards devoted to the sound, and it also had a 49-directional joystick that they made custom for the cabinets. Um, <laughs> I see your face, which sounds crazy, but right, like that's like how a multi-directional joystick would work. Oh yeah, of it course, just you don't a... just have, you have many, many directions. Yeah, yeah, yes, of course. Right, so it was more fluid than you'd expect for an arcade cabinet in 1983. But they only made about 5,000 cabinets, so limited run. Um, and then the gaming crash of the 80s hit and sales dropped a lot. And mm-hmm. so before we move on from Sinistar, which was kind of just like a little blip in this story, I just kind of wanted to chat about the legacy of this game because total cult classic. Um, it's been ported a few times to modern systems, but it's like mostly an emulator of the old arcade cabinet. And it's usually like part of like different collections. But there are a bunch of references to it in other games, um, particularly WoW. I remember that there's a boss in Black Temple um, that's a big floating skull that looks like Sinistar. And when it comes out, it goes, beware, I live. <laughs> and immediately I saw that. I was like, that's a Sinistar reference. So um, it had a sequel in 1999 called Sinistar Unleashed that was a 3D version of the game, and I owned it. I played it, but I cannot tell you whether or not it held up. So, Sweet. Okay, so that's Sinistar, but let's go back to our actual story. Yes. Now, <clears throat> RJ worked on another game called Star Rider in 1983, which was a futuristic motorcycle racing game, but then he decided he was going to move on from the company. Now, after Sinistar had been finished, the lead programmer, Sam Dicker, left the project for a company that we would later know as Amiga. Uh. Now, yeah, so we don't know the context here, but we know that Sam, after he joined up with Amiga, uh, started recruiting people from his old team, including RJ, which is how RJ ended up working for Amiga in 1984. So a little bit about RJ. He's 27 at the time. People describe him as being tall, athletically built, and the antithesis of what you would imagine a standard programmer of the time would look like, right? He's this tall, buff dude who uh, is, you know, hanging out in this office full of geeky guys, and he's just like totally stuck out. I have a fan theory Well, there was a job opening in 1984, because 1984 is the year that Paul Molyneux got gifted the 10 Commodore consoles from Amiga. <laughs> I think, it, I'm not sure, maybe, I think it was 1984 and someone must have gotten fired for that decision. <laughs> you can't escape, Peter. Maybe he'll show up again in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> working at a meet... <laughs> If you guys haven't listened to it yet, please go listen to episode four, Populous. It is like, I love it so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Working at Amiga brought RJ a new appreciation of hardware and software and how they interacted. So here's a quote from him. Quote, everything I learned at college and everything I learned going to Amiga suggested that hardware was hardware and software was software. And the way things are done is that you invent a bunch of hardware and give it to the software guys. There's a much better way of thinking that I learned at Amiga. For the first time, the hardware and software were created together. There was a great flow of communication, a mutual design coming into existence at the same time. So he gets this appreciation working at Amiga where he's like, well, maybe these two things shouldn't be separate, right? <clears throat> maybe 
you know, hardware and software should be working in tandem. Okay, so while he's there, he's, you know, he's working on computer chips. He meets his coworker, a guy named Dave Needle. They get to chatting and they both find out that they share this sort of yin and yang idea of how hardware and software should work. So they, they totally hit it off and they become work friends. I'm sure you've had like, you know, you've worked at a job and suddenly you find this person that there and you're like, oh shit, this guy's really cool. I'm going to talk to him about all my weird hobbies, right? Yeah. yeah. So the two of them though, they end up leaving Amiga in 1985. Now, I think that if I get have my facts correct, RJ then went on to work briefly at Commodore and did some work in creating the Amiga 1000. I'm not sure what Dave Needle did at this time, but the important part of this story is that they remained friends and they kept hanging out. And a couple of years later, they're sitting at a Mexican restaurant and they start chatting about the kind of stuff that they might want to build together. So... The conversation turns toward video games. Dave reaches over, he grabs a napkin, and he starts sketching things out. They come up with a plan to create a handheld video game that would have both stereo sound and color graphics. Wow. Yeah, well, for the 80s. They originally wanted something with a 16-bit chip, but then realized it wasn't practical. Um, it got too hot, the system became too heavy, so they switched their design around to have an 8-bit chip, similar to the NES. Mm -hmm. Now, they didn't have the, the money to make the system at the time, so they start shopping around for a company that might be interested in helping them to make this system. They get in touch with a video game company called Epix. Now, this is spelled really weirdly. It's E-P-Y-X. Epix. Right? Epix. Very 90s name. Not totally even is. the 90s yet. <laughs> Precursor to the 90s. <laughs> so they show off the tech... And the president of the company is impressed with it. But the president of the company was a guy named Michael Katz. Now, astute listeners might remember that name from the very first episode of the podcast, because that guy later went on to briefly become the, uh, the head of Sega of America and was in charge of a lot of the aggressive 90s advertising that Sega used at the time. But that's a story for another day and also one we talked about in the first episode. So... Michael Katz goes to the board of directors and he encourages them to take on this, this, this project for this handheld. And this creates a lengthy series of negotiations between RJ Michael and Dave Needle. You know, they're talking to this company Epics until they end up coming to this agreement that what they'll do is they're going to produce this console through Epics and they're going to take some stock in the company and some positions working there. They called their console the handy game. I, assume because you hold it in your hands right i don't know handy game fun fact in germany the word for cell phone is handy so i can relate to that well there for you go works. <laughs> it's just a mobile game dude yeah. one come uh one fun thing about development that i i liked i don't know this is totally pertinent but i wanted to put it in here um they came up with this phrase to discuss that, <clears throat> that no matter how much you prepared and no matter what you did, something would always go wrong. Their phrase was Emog Tresney, and it is their version of Murphy's Law. I'll explain what this means in a second. Apparently, there was an issue in the binary code. And um, when someone was like, help, like an outside source was helping them make this game, they fucked up and they put a one where there should have been a zero. 
And so if you didn't have a game in the slot at the time, it would display the message Emog Tresney. It was insert game spelled backward. Ah, yeah. So Emog Tresney became their like their motto, right? Like they knew something was going to go wrong and they'd go, ah, Emog Tresney. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. So it's 1988. Work on the handy game is going fine. But Epics starts running into some financial trouble. They decided that they might need some financial backers who might be able to partner with them. So they end up contacting Nintendo. I guess that the story goes that this guy from Nintendo shows up. His name was Don James, and he had this to say, quote, someone from Epics contacted us and said, hey, we've got this thing. And do you guys want to look at it? I don't think they actually offered it to us, but we found out about it and I flew down and had a look. I went down and they showed me what they were doing. It was really just a screed at that point. It was difficult to see the screen because it faded in and out if you moved it around. You had to have it at just the right angle to see the screen really well. My personal thought was that because of that, and because it just chewed through batteries like crazy, it wouldn't really catch ever catch on that well. So they call Nintendo, right? Summary. This dude shows up and he's like, this thing looks like shit. <laughs> right? Yeah, what the fuck? Is, isn't like where's the next restaurant so i can at least get something out of this trip <laughs> <laughs> right rj claims that when the guy from nintendo showed up it seemed like before he even got there that he had decided he wasn't gonna like back it so as you might imagine like nintendo passes on it uh... <clears throat> so epic's financial troubles get worse and they end up deciding that they have to sell the handy game the buyer was the atari corporation <sighs> RJ and Dave hated Atari so much that they ended up quitting after the sale had been made. Shortly thereafter, Epics collapsed into financial ruin. Now you may ask, but Tyler, what happened to the handy game? Atari took the tech and turned it into the Atari Lynx, the handheld console that we talked about in episode 11. Yes, we saw that. Now, um, according to some reports, RJ and Dave were just absolutely livid with how Atari handled their business handled their tech, and they blamed Atari for the failure of the Lynx. And so the day after they both quit, they do what they did last time. They meet up at a restaurant and they start discussing their future plans. One second. So they built a failed prototype of something and they can't make any money. So they have to sell it to someone that can that knows how to turn it into money, that it fails and they get angry at them that it fails, even though it failed with them already. And that is something that we saw a few times already. It's hard to cope with your own failure. <laughs> I will say that Epics is the entity that decided to sell off the handy game, not them. I will also say that Atari was really reviled for a time in the industry because of how they treated, like of how they, reports of how they treated their, their workers, right? Mm -hmm. And right. so... It's no surprise to me that they would be really upset that Atari would get access to this this thing that they had drawn on a napkin and it was like their baby, right? And it's probably easy to get people to agree with you if the, the person you're blaming is the villain already. Right. So we have no way to know if the handy game would yeah. become something, but um, I think that's a fair assessment. <laughs> okay, so <clears throat> they both quit. They meet up at a restaurant. They start discussing their future plans. They decide, okay. We want to go bigger this time. They make a game console. They want to make a game console that is going to be truly revolutionary. Something really different. 
So yet again, they grab some napkins at this restaurant and they start sketching out the components that they would need. That was the easy part. They start a company in 1990 called New Technologies Group. Very creative. I know. The purpose of the company was to create the new console that they had dreamed of. But they realized that if they want to make this dream console, they are going to need money. They are going to need financial backers. Yes. So first they reach out to Sega. They get the old head of Epix to come along with them to Sega. And as it turns out, the head of Sega at that time is the aforementioned Michael Katz. <laughs> so here is Katz on how it went down. Did they go into the room and they, they saw each other and they looked at each other for like five seconds and then just turned around and left again? <laughs> oh, fuck. Well, see, Michael Katz knew. Th so like there's a couple different players here. So like Michael Katz was the head of Epix. And then he left to go work at Sega, if I have this mm -hmm. order correctly. Someone else took over at Epix. After Epix folded, okay, Dave and RJ and this other guy from Epix all uh, went to go see Michael Katz. And Michael Katz is like, hey, bros, right? Mm. Okay. So it actually made it easier for them. Michael Katz wasn't mad at them or something. No. Um, the guy that they went with, his name was Dave Morris, although this is the only time he shows up in this story. So here's, um, here's Katz on how it went down. Dave Morris, who replaced me briefly as the president of Epix, came to me with RJ and Dave Needle when I was the president of Sega. They presented me the concept of paying them $2 million and giving them years to develop the next, quote, ultimate revolutionary, end quote, video game system. And I was all for it based on their credentials because they had developed the Amiga computer and they had developed the links. I had just paid $1.7 million to Joe Montana to get his picture on a game. I thought it was nothing to pay $2 million to get the next hardware system developed. That's fair. So Katz tells them, okay, I think this, you know, I'm summarizing him here, but he's basically like, this is a great idea. This, this is a pittance of money compared to what we spend on other shit, right? <laughs> so he tells, and also one side note, um, everything I know about Sega in the 90s is that they fucking blew cash, man. They would just blow cash. So also probably for someone that's interested in producing things. At some point, you get tired of just spending money on advertisement and yeah. knowing we have at some point we have to put money into R&D and whatever these guys make, we will be able to keep. It's true. So Katz tells them to go to Japan and pitch it to the head of Sega Japan, Nakayama. Now, it isn't clear what happened here. Um, and stories are sparse, but apparently they visited Sega Japan a couple of times and they met with Nakayama, but Sega eventually passed on the offer and turned them down. There's a lot of reasons for this. We'll actually talk about them in a later episode. Okay. One of the 500 prepared episodes <laughs> in the backlog of Tyler's, Tyler's book of scripts. They're all connected, bro. Everything's connected. <laughs> it's all connected. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> So, so where do they go? They decide to contact an old acquaintance of theirs and set up a meeting to show off the software. That old acquaintance was a man named Trip Hawkins. Trip, he's back. Oh, Trip Trip's Hawkins. back. Trip's back, baby. I can remember that slick smile. So suave, so smooth. So suave, so good with people. <laughs> Such a good company leader, and he's also a representative of the art of making computer games. EA made this industry what it is today. 
nobody would ever have any suspicion about EA doing anything that's illicit. Or yeah, no, he, he's, nothing. he's great. He's yeah, a great all, guy. Yeah, so it's yeah. Good, great company. <laughs> <laughs> a Trip Hawkins, a man who knows how to work a room. One, 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 yeah, one second. Um, also, the moment you mentioned Trip Hawkins, my, my heart started levitating because I knew this story will be going in a good direction because now that EA is involved I know that nothing can go wrong. What can go wrong in a story where EA gets involved? Do you have any example of the episodes that we did where anything bad happened after EA was mentioned? I can't think of anything other than you know the normal actions that a upstanding capitalistic profit driven company would take. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. And we all know that the pursuit of money is truly the best pursuit that you can follow. I think so too. And I think that's why EA set the best example for whatever you can do in your life. This has been a very long snarky diatribe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. So so sorry for totally getting you out of the snarky. It's okay. So in the last episode, I ended with that some people would show up and give something, you know, present him with an idea that would really change the industry. That moment is now. Okay. Okay. So they started talking to Trip Hawkins. He knew them from their their previous work. He had like like talked to them when they were part of a couple of different companies. Like they were like mutual acquaintances. Yeah, Trip knew his way around. He 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 knew what was going on in the gaming world, right? Yeah. And yeah. so he was a natural choice. He was a natural choice for them because he was the CEO of Electronic Arts. He understood the gaming industry because in many ways he had built it. Um, He had an insane amount of contacts that he could draw upon. And like I said, he had tangentially known them from their work on previous projects. And he described them as kindred spirits. So he looks at their console and he says that they made the same decisions that he would have made regarding console architecture and approach. This was the console that Trip Hawkins had been waiting for, and it just made sense for him to join forces with them instead of building a new team to create what they had already made, right? Yeah. Now, a quick thing. They were calling the console the three-dimensional operating system, Mm -hmm. which they then shortened to the 3DO. Oh, yeah. Its full official name became the 3DO Interactive Multiplayer. Hawkins created a company in 1991 that would eventually be called the 3DO Company. And then, eventually, the new technologies group that Dave and RJ had made merged into 3DO and they became the same company. Was it like a subsidiary of EA or just its own company? I think it was its own company, but EA backed it. So we'll okay. actually talk about this sort of weirdness in a minute. I don't think that EA owned the company in any way. I just think that Trip had his hands in both. Yep, makes sense. Our two groups of developers have merged into one story. So I'm going to talk more about Hawkins moving forward as he very much became the face of this venture. But yep. we will like talk a bit more about RJ and Dave at the end. Okay. They are very much there throughout this entire process, even if I'm not like explicitly name dropping them. So to take on this idea would require all of Trip Hawkins' resources. It meant more than just making a new console. It meant directly challenging the big companies of the day, Nintendo and Sega. And Hawkins was perfect for this role. Yes, the console market had been split up already, right? This, mm-hmm. this wasn't a market where there was room for the taking still. 
this was this was going to be an industry war. It was. To try and stake out something that was different would be very, very difficult. Luckily, mm-hmm. they had something that was very different, um, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But it was very much, at least in the United States, a war between Nintendo and Sega for, you know, the console market. So with the console, Hawkins wanted to do something different with distribution. If the present console makers would fight back, he wanted to create something to give game makers more freedom. So other companies produce their own hardware. So for example, let's say you wanted to buy a Genesis or a master system or, you know, whatever it was called and wherever you live, you would be buying one from Sega and Sega would essentially produce all of their hardware in-house, right? Hawkins took a different angle. They would create a hardware template and then license the ability to make the hardware to other companies. They also wouldn't make games internally. They would just license the tech to companies who wanted to make games for the machine. So in this way, you can imagine that the 3DO was more like a, like what we would imagine a PC to be. You have hardware, and then what you decide to do with that hardware is up to you. It's not gate-kept by companies. Creators and consumers would decide what they want to do with it. And so the console would, in theory, be more powerful than a PC at the time, cheaper than a PC, have backward compatibility, and would have very lucrative licensing. And development, for the most part, would be handled internally at EA. And this would be an advantage to Nintendo and Sega, right? Well, it depends. And we'll actually talk about the merits of this decision as we go forward and what Trip thought of it and what other people in the industry thought of this at mm-hmm. the time. Yeah. But if it follow it follows with what Trip's about, right? Like what we talked about in the previous episode, sort of this like freedom of creators. Mm-hmm. And we'll yeah. dig more into that as we go. Which was kind of this idea from the start to not have the company hovering over everything and grabbing everything, but um making right. the giving giving the artist the choice of what they're doing. Right. Let talent be talent w- yeah. without being restricted. The 1992 Consumer Electronics Show. Hawkins reveals his console to the press. Okay, here's the tech. Here's the here's the crunchy bits of it. You'd play things on the console through CD-ROMs. Okay, this is absolutely novel at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it could play games, music. It could display photos, so long as they were on a CD-ROM. This is why it was called a multiplayer because it could play multiple types of media. Mm-hmm. I think we use the term multiplayer to mean something different now, but... Yes. It had three megabytes of memory. It had an operating system that could multitask like a PC. Games were written for the operating system, not the hardware, so that games would always be backward compatible, even if the hardware upgraded. Mm, Nice. The whole system was built around a 32-bit processing chip. It also had two custom graphics chips and an animation processor. It had an expansion port for an additional memory unit. And AT&T was in talks to create a modem add-on for the system that would have allowed voice chat and online gaming in 1992. Yeah, I want to see that invoice. (laughs) 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 Oh my God, can you imagine voice chat over dial-up? Kevin! What? Seven thousand dollars? <laughs> what have you done? 
You don't understand, Mom. I was just hanging out with my friends. <laughs> Back in my day when we wanted to hang out with our friends, we went outside and went for a bicycle ride. We played with dirt and muck. And we liked it. <laughs> I was the queen of dirt in my day. And all my friends would say, all hail the queen of dirt when I would walk by and they would laugh. <laughs> it's, it's nice how we millennials just twisted the boomers concerned with money which is completely legitimate uh -huh. into them being being completely backward thinking cave people even though it's a legitimate <laughs> concern to teach your children about not spending a frivolous amount of money for things that you don't actually need <laughs> i don't understand you need to spend seven thousand dollars to play with your friends <laughs> i needed it mom yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> shout out, shout out to my boy Kevin. R.I.P. Kevin. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it had, it had it had a modem, and you could connect to the internet to voice chat. Well, they were in talks to make a modem. I don't know that the modem ever came to fruition. Ah, okay. But it was yeah. a cool idea for the time. Yeah. Now CDs were the choice for various reasons. At this time, if you wanted to fit a megabyte of data onto a cartridge. It caught like like a, you know, I don't know, a Genesis cartridge or whatever. Mm -hmm. It cost about $10 per megabyte. A CD-ROM at the time held about 500 megabytes and cost about a dollar. That's a big savings. That's hyper and, cheap. Right? And you couldn't really save things um, in the same way on cartridges because memory was typically all hard memory and you didn't have a ton of storage space. So the differences between CDs and cartridges at the time were so stark that it was almost a no-brainer. But this is also why the console needed a lot of RAM. Mm -hmm. Now, it wasn't region-locked either, which was a deliberate choice by Hawkins. Other companies had region locks on their games and consoles because they wanted to create like territorial boundaries and force you to buy within those boundaries. Yeah. And Trip called that, quote, way too controlling and typical of how Nintendo wanted to manage their empire. <laughs> <laughs> Hawkins is much more open. And as he put it, quote, humanity wins anything if there is more freedom. So that's why I'm not surprised the industry has evolved since then. Cool. But. It was truly revolutionary for the time. Uh, and I know that that sounds bombastic, but these were a lot of ideas that were like really crazy when you're talking about like, you know, Nintendo cartridges, right? Yes, absolutely. So with EA's backing and Trip's charisma, it made a huge splash in the market. And the plan was this, that EA would make games that were exclusive for the 3DO. And this would be good for both companies, Trip thought. And this is an important detail. We'll talk about it later. Because EA was backing the console, this brought in a lot of interested parties who might not have gambled on a new console otherwise. Several companies expressed an interest in manufacturing hardware. Panasonic, Sanyo, AT&T, just to name a few. Over 80 companies signed on to make games, including big names like Activision and LucasArts. The proposed rate in licensing fees for developers was only around $3 per game sold. So it was very lucrative compared to the rates that Sega and Nintendo were giving. Yeah. And Wall Street was excited. Gaming magazines were excited. It received coverage in large mass market newspapers like the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. It was in Time Magazine. 
over 30 different financial analysts or bleh, analysts <laughs> from investment firms came by to the booth when he presented it and asked for briefings on the hardware. It had TV coverage, NBC, CNN, CNBC, all aired television segments on the console. It blew up. At one point, you have a face. <laughs> you look nervous. I'm confused because okay, I don't know about this console. Why? How? What is going to happen here? What is? I I see I see something coming, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> Whatever could it be, Docs? Oh no! Please don't trip. Don't do a trip. Please don't. <laughs> I trusted you so many times, Trip. Why don't you? Why do you do it every time? <laughs> <laughs> now, let's do a fun side story. At one point in 1992, Peter Molyneux walks up to Hawkins at a conference and just starts pitching him game ideas that would be on the 3DO. I guess he just walked up and was like, hey, Trip, I got three ideas. Which one do you like better? <laughs> Hawkins describes them all as being pretty interesting things that he thinks got turned into, into games later, but none of them ended up being for the 3DO. It was which, all uh, different iterations of Populous because Peter Molyneux <laughs> never made anything else than different versions of Populous. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think the stuff that he made, like the stuff he pitched to Trip, we don't know what it was, but Trip says it all sort of ended up being on the PlayStation. So, so there's Peter again, just wandering into our story and then wandering right back out as quickly as he came holding a can of beans <laughs> hey peter i got three cans of beans they're all from different different producers which one you like better i think we're gonna open up these cans right here and just have a little taste test at your booth <laughs> now which of these beans do you like better black or what <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a really bad joke. I apologize for that. That's okay. <laughs> okay. Okay, so <laughs> I love I, I love when he appears in our stories. So it became such big news that as Hawkins put it, the 3DO dominated. And there really wasn't any kind of competition for the hardware that they were selling. It was just so cutting edge for the time. Time magazine named 3DO the product the product of the year. Um, and so as a side note, to give you context of how fucking crazy this fervor over the 3DO was at the time, um, Hawkins was so on top of the world that he was given the keynote speech at the 1993 Consumer Electronics Show the following year. Bill Gates had asked to be the keynote speaker and they turned down Bill Gates and said, no, we're going to go with Trip Hawkins. Well, Trip is much better looking than Bill. So I, if if I was given the the choice to choose either Trip or Bill Gates, I'd always go for Trip Hawkins. Because just look at the man. I mean, yeah, Trip does exude cool. Yeah. So on the other hand, the big game companies of the time were not impressed. Howard Lincoln from Nintendo claimed that they were breaking the cardinal rule which was that you couldn't rely on other people to make good games for your system. <laughs> this guy is doing much better than us. It's against the rules. Why, why is he doing this? This is absolutely against industry. This is a typical industry move. This is, is not how you're supposed to do it because it's doing much better than we are doing. 
This thing's very exciting, but it's not how we do it, and we're mad. They took our germs. (laughs) They took our germs. (laughs) Okay, so so he's like, yeah, like you shouldn't rely on other people to make good games for your system because you don't, you can't like give that quality, right? You see how it doesn't Uh, hold up. You can't just, you can't even say the sentence. It doesn't make any sense. Why? Why are you not allowed to do that? Okay, keep going. It's okay. Okay, it's just a Michael Katz. No, it is. It is. Michael Katz. There he is again. Called the new model ridiculous. Why would more than one company want to compete against someone with the exact same product? Why would a retailer want to buy the same product for more than from more than one company? Okay, so for example, right, like if Panasonic and AT&T both produce 3DO consoles, why would Panasonic and AT&T want to compete with each other? And then if Kmart wants to buy a bunch of 3DOs, who do they go through, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a fair assessment. So also, to be clear here, whatever companies that they partnered with to make the 3DO, um, like they weren't paying each other, right? Like it wasn't this kind of relationship. They basically licensed them the tech. Mm -hmm. And so it's like two separate entities working together. So Hawkins describes this time as one in which a lot of hardware companies really didn't have a vision of where they wanted to be in the future. As he saw it, they were all just like kind of waiting around for someone to develop something new and come along and basically shake up the industry. Uh, and he thought of the 3DO as a catalyst in this way. And I will say that there, I'm going to briefly spoil a, a part of a future episode. This this tracks with like some stuff that Sega was doing at the time, because when they started doing some next-gen console stuff, you know, they basically, a bunch of people came in and were like, what if we did the Genesis 2 and it has more colors. <laughs> and they were like, why would we do this? <laughs> right? Which we'll talk about in another time because uh, it caused a big kerfuffle. But like, that's, that's the level of innovation that was going on at the industry mm-hmm. at the time. Yeah. Okay, but they still needed companies to actually manufacture the goods. A few companies had expressed interest in creating the console and had signed on. So Sanyo, um, Gold Star, and Panasonic. But Hawkins wanted someone bigger. And one of the biggest companies that you could reach out to was Sony. They were, and still are, one of the largest electronics manufacturers in the world. And so he had a lot of interest in bringing them in. But it became clear during the talks that Sony had already started research and development on their own console, the Sony PlayStation. Oh, yeah. At this time, the 3DO was a year and a half ahead in R&D time. And so Sony had to make a choice. Would they abandon their console and partner with the 3DO, which was way further along? Or should they just stay the path and continue to develop their own product? They came very close to signing an agreement. The 3DO was just so far beyond what you could buy as a console at the time. It was very exciting. But eventually, they just decided to finish their own console, which was a decision that would have far-reaching ramifications not only for the industry, but also the future of the 3DO. Okay, so the console was marketed as an adult gamer alternative to the gaming industry. In some circles, the, the SNES and the Genesis were seen to be kids' toys. This also, is something that comes up this is again Trip Hawkins' view on games, right? He, from the start, believed that video games were not for kids, but for grown-up people. 
Right. They wanted to develop things that 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 older, you know, older consumers could enjoy as well. That goes right? along with the idea of video games being art. True. Although I would say art can be for children. It but you know, it has to be how do I want to put this? It's it's a lot different, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so they want he wants it to be this adult gamer alternative, right? Mm -hmm. And and so, you know, like I said, if you think of the SNES, you think of the Genesis, think of the games that came out at that time, cute characters, you know, brandable mascots, flashy colors. But along with this was a lot of censorship in games as well, because this is the 90s and things are starting to heat up with censorship in the United States. Yeah. So, you know, nude characters, excessive gore, mature themes are these were difficult things to find on consoles if you were an adult. Now, if you were on PC you were fine. But gaming PCs, as I mentioned, were pretty expensive at the time. And, you know, CD-ROM drives were starting to become a thing and they had a lot of power, but they were expensive. And you could play really neat games at the arcade, but the tech really lagged behind at the consumer level. And, and so when they create this console, right? They're, they're marketing it as here is this all, you know, here's this alternative. It's better than all this other shit. Yep. And so, the advertising for the game, um, as you might imagine, played on this. And so my my favorite one from this time, maybe the most famous one, is imagine this. It's an overhead view of a toy box, okay? And in the background, someone is awkwardly awkwardly playing um, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on a piano. Yeah. And slowly from, you know, the top-down view, you hear this noise like something is falling into the box and a snes falls into the box and like smashes and then a genesis falls into the box and smashes and the voice says it's time to put away your toys if you're not playing on a 3do system what are you playing with presenting 3do the most advanced home gaming system in the universe <laughs> So like they really like almost ham-fistedly were like these other consoles are toys. You're a big grown-up and you have big grown-up money and you should be an adult and play adult things. Don't play those kid systems. This also fits into the way at uh video consoles advertised against each other during the time because yeah. we saw that with Sega and we saw that with the Jaguar. <laughs> they yep. constantly trash talk each other for some reason. It's true. Do the math. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> Docs, with all of this in mind, cutting edge tech, all the stuff that it does, how much do you think this would cost in 1993 dollars? Take a guess. $700. Oh my God, $699. Fucking spot on. That was you, really good. Yeah, you said it's going to be cheaper than a computer. Computers were around $2,000. If, if you wanted the same level of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then probably more expensive than the others, if you ask like that. Mm -hmm. Lucky guess. That was great. Good job. So when you're comparing this to other consoles of the time, you know, you could get a Genesis for like 200 bucks, right? If you got it on sale, you could get it for 150. So why is it more expensive? So one reason is that it was so highly priced is that other companies found ways to bring their the price of their consoles down. So we we talked about this all the way in the first episode of the podcast. But the common tactic 
was to charge game royalties to publishers and use the money that they gained from those royalties to subsidize the cost of the machine. So it's we call it the razors and blades model. You hear it in marketing a lot where buying the razor itself is cheap and you might even sell it at a loss, but then you make money on the price of the blades. So in the world of gaming, that means that you sell this cheap console almost, you know, at cost or even at a loss just to get it into people's hands. And then people will buy a bunch of games, which, you know, you make a whole bunch of money on. You make profit on that. Yeah. So since they weren't doing that, um, this meant that the 3DO was a lot more expensive than other consoles on the market at the time. So this was over four times the price of a Super Nintendo or a Genesis. So the way Trip spoke of it was like this. Nintendo and Sega shifted the cost burden onto the software made for the machine. And so he thought that if you paid a higher upfront cost, that didn't put the burden on software, then there would be more flexibility in what could be charged for the software, right? So yeah. instead of like, forcing developers to pay x amount of money to do y thing they could charge whatever they wanted right yes but also they'd still be competing with the because that if if you compete against people that use these razors and blades model you're kind of fucked because people people don't see that people don't think like that they just see a cheap console and think like mm, i have a console i buy one game and then i have fun with it of course you buy more games in the long run but you don't think like that Right. Now, I will say that there was some historical precedent for this uh, large price, upfront mm -hmm. price. And, and, and so Trip looked back to the Commodore charging, to Commodore charging around $700 for their Commodore 64. Yep. And so since he thought, you know, the 3DO is so much more technologically advanced than a Commodore 64, he thought the consumers would be willing to pay the price because it wasn't just a machine that could play games, thus, you know, the multiplayer. It could play all kinds of media so long as it was on a disc. So he thought, you know, it's better hardware, even if it has this higher price tag. Consumers would be able to use it for a whole bunch of different things at a lower cost than they would in buying those things separately. And right? we absolutely know that Trip Hawkins is obsessed with numbers and puts a lot of thought into these. Just remember 1982, 1982, 1982, 1982. <laughs> how he was convinced because he had the, his, this thought model of when he was going to bring out his console, his um, right, his 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 company, and I bet it's the same with this. Us trash talking his ideas makes no sense at all because he was obviously a man that put a lot of thought into his numbers. Yeah, trip trip really planned for a lot of things. I yeah. mean, there's definite holes in this. You know, we, we talk about trip as like he was this prophetic dude who saw all this stuff. He still had issues too. Um, even in the previous episode, I mentioned how like. A lot of people criticized him for getting into the console market so late. Like yeah. He didn't think consoles were the future at all. He thought it was, you know, PC, PC, PC. You know, brilliant, brilliant guy. Foresaw he, a lot of things. That, he was right about the PC thing. He was just a bit, he just didn't wait long enough. <laughs> just, it's true. It's true. <laughs> I went from being a console. Well, I went from being both a console gamer and a PC gamer to being a 99% PC gamer at this point. Yeah. It's just so much easier. I don't have to be locked behind all this bullshit. So they debated for a while what game should be packed in with the system, right? So like, okay, you buy you buy a console and you usually get a game, right? Like you want to have something you can fucking play on it. And so the original decision was to pair it with a game called Shelley Duvall's A Bird's Life. It was an educational game where you learned about birds, mostly geared at younger children. 
if you've listened to anything that I've said so far, right, you want this suave adult console, right? Um, that doesn't really fit with what they wanted to portray. This would be this console for sophisticated adults. So a company called Crystal Dynamics popped up and made a really cool driving game called Crash and Burn, like Crash and Burn. Mm -hmm. It ended up being in the package and it was a much better fit. So leading up to release, the hype was immense. It was all over Hollywood, telecoms, the media, the public. Everybody wanted in. So much hype. With only a proof of concept, no actual hardware shipped, the company had a stock market value of around $300 million. That's a lot of value. It is, especially when you think back to like, you know, RJ and Dave being like, we want $2 million in a couple of years to make a, <laughs> to make a console, right? It hasn't even fucking released They didn't say yet. it like that. They said they want $2 million to make the best console that will ever be. <laughs> the best console in the universe. In the universe. <laughs> they wouldn't want that handle. So the console launched in October 1993 in the United States. Now, FYI, this is technically a month before the Atari Jaguar. So mm -hmm. I know in that episode, I, I corrected myself near the end. But this is, this is technically the first fifth gen console. <clears throat> Most retailers sold it at $599. So $100 less than the suggested price. It launched six months later in Japan and a year later in Europe. Mm -hmm. So while these all didn't hit at release, uh, there were six different machines released using the 3DO's specifications. Three of them were made by Panasonic, two of them were made by Goldstar, and one of them was made by Sanyo. Also, Creative Labs released something called the Creative 3DO Blaster, which you would let you hook up a card into your PC, and then you could run 3DO games on your PC. Sweet. That's right? Sweet. How fucking cool is that? But there weren't many games at launch, which is a tried and true tale of every <laughs> fucking console ever. So for the time... For a very brief window, I think it was literally just the game in the box. Like, just Crash and Burn. But then other games started coming out. Though the only one that released around, like, the release date that's worth talking about was a space flight game called Total Eclipse. Mm -hmm. You know, that's really it. Um, there were a few others, but, like, nothing really to write home about. But, luckily, Crash and Burn got great reviews. Everything about it felt next-gen. It had good draw distance, great textures, full motion video. Reviewers were excited and enthusiastic about what the 3DO could do. But the game issue continued for a long time. And one problem was that games took a very long, a very long time to make. They were expensive for developers, and the tech was so new that development was very lengthy. Right, like if you're you're going from 2D to 3D, and you've never done this before, and you've trained your whole life on making 2D shapes, right? Suddenly, to work in a 3D, the 3D environment really changes things up. Yeah, absolutely. And the games that came out initially were not great indicators of what the console could do. However, EA, remember, making games for the 3DO, did publish several games that are standouts. Road Rash was ported over from the Genesis. If you don't know Road Rash, it's a motorcycle racing game where you fight each other and punch each other and shit. I actually know that. Yeah, it's cool. Road good, Rash really, is so fun. Really cool game concept. It really is. I oh man, a buddy of mine used to have it for the Genesis, and I'd go over and we beat the shit out of each other. He was so much <laughs> better than me. 
Um, they also published a 3DO version of Madden NFL, which had digitized footage of Madden himself. It also had more detailed player models. Nice. FIFA had a release, which included an actual 3D field and multiple camera angles, as well as audio commentary as plays were made. Uh, the FIFA release is looked at as one of the best demonstrations of what next-gen sports games could be, and really like created a template moving forward. One thing about audio commentary on sport games in the early video games, after 10 minutes of playing the game, you can all you have them all memorized. <laughs> that's, that's true. It. You can just you can and it's still like that. Like you the, and I think by now the voice lines are, have gotten so so various that you cannot memorize them as quick anymore, but it always happens. It's true. Well, we as humans <clears throat> we as humans are very astute at recognizing patterns. And so once we hear something multiple times, it becomes ingrained, you know, and, and hearing things over and over doesn't necessarily make them bad. I still, I still say darkest dungeon quotes in my daily life. Right. <laughs> I looked at Andrew the other Drink day and I went, bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> I looked at Andrew the other day and I went, fear and panic consumes the mind. <laughs> I fucking love that game. <laughs> oh, if there ever was a game that was stress personified, it is Darkest Dungeon. But okay, so back to our story. So EA also teamed up with Car and Driver magazine to make the game Need for Speed, which is still a popular franchise today. It had its first release on the 3DO. It is. You know what? I always thought that the movie series... Too Fast to Furious spawned out of Need for Speed. For some reason, I always thought that. I think it's not true. I, I, th I think they're completely separate things. But for some reason, in my mind, they are completely connected. Because I started playing Need for Speed at the same time that I got obsessed with the movie Too Fast, Too Furious for the second part. So yeah. I, I played Need for Speed all day and also watched that movie twice a day. So that's that's how I connected it in my mind. But that's really cool. Need for Speed is such a good game. Yeah. <laughs> Total side note: Did you know that Fast and Furious Nine just came out in theaters? Um, yeah, I'm. I only was obsessed with one part of this <laughs> series, <laughs> and I was like eleven. So that's kind of over for me. <laughs> in ten, there is a petition. There is a petition to have them send cars to the moon or to space <laughs> because in each in each episode, each movie, they ratchet up the crazy more and more. And so there's a petition for intent to just go full insanity and have car battles in space. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, anyway, so <laughs> one of the good and bad things about the games that came out for the 3DO was that they used full motion video. This was incredible at the time. But some of the games essentially ended up being interactive movies. Now, again, the tech here is really cool. You didn't really have this before. But consumers complained that they weren't so much games as they were just like watching a movie with some choices. Mm -hmm. But they did work with Hollywood to make a lot of these, and they were a pretty neat concept that caught on later. Now, another issue that consumers had was with the controller. Apparently, because of how the controller was built, sometimes you couldn't really make diagonal moves correctly. And so when people would call in to complain, they would get connected to technicians and the technicians would tell them that the easiest fix was to loosen the screws on the back of the controller and that would fix the issue. And like it kind of did, but it kind of didn't. 
Um, looking at it, I think it kind of looks like I don't know, like a like a weird knockoff Genesis controller. That's the only way that I can put it. Oh yeah, it does. I feel like the tip um, loosen the screws on the back of your controller feels like a troll move by annoyed technicians. Um, <laughs> You take some scissors and cut off the cable that connects your controller to the console. So that's the way you're going to fix it. I, got, now, I, ha I have just... to hang up now. Sorry. <laughs> if you could just um, delete your system file, um, that'll just fix the whole the whole issue. Shit, it does look like an off-brand PlayStation. Okay, so so I just sent Docs a picture of this. Do you want to, you want to describe real quick what it looks like? Yeah, it's a box that has like four ingrown pillars on each corner and like a cd compartment in the front and it has panasonic written all over it because i guess this is the panasonic version of it right and yeah. it has the controller has a d-pad on the left and on the right it has three buttons a b and c now i just sent you a different version as well oh. and you can see i'm gonna i'm gonna send you a couple here so you can see, and we can describe these to people. We don't have to go super into it. How all of these sort of look a bit different, right? Just, they just have the same color and the same controller setup. And the yeah. reason that these all look a bit different, um, you know, one of them is smoother on the top and has like a rounded sort of edge. One of them is um, like a box, but the top of the box doesn't stick up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the reason that these all look a little bit different is because remember, this is hardware that is being licensed out. They're like, here's a template. Here's all the stuff you need to do. You know, you make the rest. They just need right? to fit it into a box, right? Right. You just need to fit it into a box. And the, and the style that they chose was completely up to them. Okay. So Makes sense. Going back to the controller real fast, really cool things about this controller, even though it got a lot of shit. And that was that you could, if you notice, it only has one port there for one controller. Right. Yeah. But what if you wanted to play with friends? Well, you could daisy chain controllers together because there was a slot on the top of the controller where you could plug someone else's controller in. Ooh. So you could have up to like eight different people all playing so long as they were all connected by controller. And you were all weirdly connected to each other, which would make it a terrible fuck mess to get out of each other <laughs> after you've done fighting each other on the console. <laughs> Those are all entangled, yeah. But still a cool idea for the time, right? Um, yeah. And you could plug headphones into them, like a modern Xbox controller or something. So really innovative for, for the time period. Cool. The 3DO was um, moderately successful in the beginning. A lot of the detractors were sort of silenced by this early success. People said that the console was really serious quality for the time. It was weighty. It was detailed. If you picked it up and 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 you saw it in a 90s living room, right, it, it looked like a top-of-the-line machine in all aspects. It was well thought out, especially when you were comparing it to other consoles. Um, you know, when, when you think of the Atari Jaguar, right, and we talk about all the issues, like, it looked cool, but it had a lot of problems. Like, console the 3DO... <laughs> It, it would gather console smegma. <laughs> no, this looks like a really, um, really neat 90s console. Uh, I agree. On one level with the PlayStation, for example. So in their first year of release, 1993, I will note, though, that they were outsold by the Atari Jaguar. But in that first year, they sold around 125,000 consoles, which was great for a new company with a new console in the market. And then... The price across the board dropped down to $500, which became a lot more reasonable. Now, one issue that they ran into 
early on was that the media never really covered the machine as a multimedia platform like they wanted it to do. It and many consoles after it were purely judged on their merits as a gaming machine. And that made their business model take some hits. In the early part of 1994, Panasonic lowered the price of their version of the console to $400, but sales were still kind of low. The console was often scolded for being a, quote, rich man's gaming system because of the price tag. Yeah. But as they moved further into 1994, the 3DO started to pick up steam. As we mentioned in a previous episode, there wasn't really a ton of competition in the early days of the fifth generation of consoles. The Jaguar was plagued with issues, both in hardware and software, and the 3DO was seen to be the better console of the two by far. Sega started experimenting with expansion units to the Genesis, which we'll talk about in another day, and then released the Sega Saturn in 1994. But there was a whisper on the wind. Sony's console was coming, and it looked to be a big one. A quick note here. It was really unclear to me when this next part of the story went down, so I put it here because it fit with us talking about it. So this might be slightly out of order, but this is like an important part of the story that I wasn't sure where to slot in because no one took, no one mentioned what year this occurred in. Yeah. But the relationship between the 3DO and EA began to strain. Hawkins was highly focused on pushing back against console makers. He wanted consoles to be like PCs, but EA was looking long-term. Financially, they expected that because the PlayStation was on the horizon, it was going to open up a metric shit ton of revenue opportunities for the company. And it became clear as time wore on that the support that EA had promised for the 3DO was not coming. They started getting offers from Sony to create exclusives for the PS1, and the board at EA couldn't resist. And why would they? So they turned away from making 3DO exclusives and started working on games for the PS1 instead. Wow. Yeah, right? So while it turns out that EA in the long run probably made the right call, we don't really know what would have happened if they had continued supporting the 3DO. And Hawkins was pissed. In interviews, he talks about it as if he will never forgive them. He often refers to it as being stabbed in the back. Quote, Once they became separate companies, it was easy for the suits at EA to say, Hey, Sony wants us to support their PlayStation thing, and they're going to put billions of dollars into it. We'd be stupid not to do that. So yeah, we're going to throw Trip under the bus, but that's Trip's problem. Wow. Okay, I gave Trip shit earlier for probably betraying the 3DO, but he didn't, so I'm going to give the board of EA shit now. Man, sorry for you, Trip. You You built a monster, and now you can't control it anymore. It's true. Now, Tripp says he understood the fear that management had about the 3DO, but he also feels that Sony knew about this and started courting electronic arts with better deals. So they'd say, oh, we see that you're doing stuff with the 3DO. Oh, what if we gave you really good licensing deals? What if we set you up with this sweet back-end deal that would really make you a lot of money, bro? And so... um. You know, they ended up giving EA these massively lucrative deals that they probably wouldn't have gotten if they hadn't been involved with the creation of the 3DO. Shit. Right? Look but, at this espionage. Yeah. 
isn't but that's the same thing they did to to sega didn't they yeah although their their uh shady stuff with sega was a lot more literal (laughs) like literally getting their technology espionage yeah (laughs) right this is more like swamp business dealing so yeah Okay, so what this meant is that the 3DO company was forced to start developing their own first-party games if EA was going to ditch them. And he talks about, um, Hawkins talks about how they didn't really have much of a choice because the console would be dead in the water if they didn't have games. But developing their own games brought further strain on the relationship between 3DO and EA. Now, if 3DO was making both games and software, that made them a competitor and EA was not having it. Hawkins spoke to his legal counsel, and they basically told him that he couldn't be the chairman for both EA and 3DO if they were now at odds with each other. Yeah, it would be a conflict of interest. It would. Hawkins, quote, EA was like a rebellious teenager, and I knew the company would make it into mature adulthood, which it has, 3DO, by contrast, was a baby, a child in intensive care needing open-heart surgery, and I was the only available doctor. So he was going to sacrifice his position in EA to go to the 3DO guys? Yes. He feels compelled to stay with the 3DO, and he ends his relationship with EA, stepping down. So he fully severs his relationship with the company he started all those years ago. For now, just for now, I respect that. The story's not over yet, but for now, I respect it. <laughs> I do think that he, like, I, I'm not sure here. The details are a little fuzzy. I think he, like, partly stayed on, on like, part of the board or something for a while. Um, but he steps down as president of the company he founded. Now, Also, one could rephrase this as filthy rich man steps down <laughs> from stressful position to take more relaxed position that does not risk his own financial value in any way. Fair. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so who do they get to replace Trip Hawkins at EA? The replacement that they found was actually his longtime co-worker and sales manager, Larry Probst. Now, we spoke about him in the previous episode. He was their very business-minded associate who was Mm -hmm. basically their numbers guy. Those, I will say, those who worked under Larry spoke highly of him, said that he was the right pick for the job even years later. Even though he wasn't really into the, into the games industry like at all, he and he wasn't a super outgoing or creative person, he was good at keeping people in line and shooting down bad ideas. Notice the change of focus at EA. Hawkins is this center of attention guy, right? He can work a room in every conversation. He can speak eloquently. He played all, he, you know, he played many of the games that he sold. He had ideas that broke the mold of the time period. And then you get Larry, right? Larry's much different. He's soft-spoken. He's a numbers guy. He doesn't want the spotlight. He just wants sales and he wants to get the job done. And didn't we make clear that he's not a gamer at all? Not really. He's not even into games. Yeah. Yeah. So now we've gone for from a like like to a complete business focus at EA. And here's a here's a longer quote that Trip had to say about it. I'm a nerd and a creative guy. There's another more corporate type that's all business. These have been called ponytails and suits. What happened when I left EA is that the leadership went from a ponytail to a suit. Right? We'll pause real quick, right? The ponytails are like the nerdy geeky guys, the suits are the business dudes. Okay. 
I had grown up playing Stratomatic with the annual updates of player cards because their stats change and they change teams. I'd initiated annual rosters for EA Sports games in 1989, and the company stuck with that model. And we expanded the sports lineup dramatically on Sega and elsewhere beginning in 1999 or in 1990. This annual edition model was fully baked before I left, and the operating style focused on it after I left, and gradually relied on more licenses and perennial brands and did less than others from the standpoint of new original IP. But you can tell that sometimes you can get complacent if you're on top or if you have an exclusive license or a strong brand. It's a big challenge to make a great new game in less than a year because you need to allow time for testing, revision, bug fixes. All these things make it tough for EA to please everyone all the time. So that's like a lengthier quote that also talks about Madden and the yearly updates. But he very much was aware of the fact that he was a different kind of person than people who were taking over the company that he started. Yes. When the PlayStation hit the market in December of 1994, it launched for $399. It was an incredible machine and gamers knew it. Sony had a budget of $2 billion to work with and they were not beholden to any other companies to make their product. They priced it at a point that they knew that they would lose some, they knew that they would lose some money on the tech, but they made an assumption that manufacturing costs on things like CD-ROMs and RAM would lower in the following decade, right? So they're like, we're going to sell this at this price point, and we're assuming that in the future, the stuff that we use to produce this is going to be cheaper. Mm-hmm. And so, with the release of the PlayStation, Sony sucked all of the excitement of the 3DO out of the room, and with good reason. I, I never imagined how much speculation goes into this because the pricing is so important and they have to make these tough calls on we're going to make this cheaper on a loss a lot and this is a super risky, risky bit and if it's not going to work, we screw ourselves totally over. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Now, the 3DO outsold the Jaguar in 1994, but with the introduction of two powerful new companies in the market, well, I say new, um, Sega joined the market and Sony was new. Um, The 3DO would have to make its final stand. They were now competing for an even more limited amount of shelf space within stores, and the console had started to lose momentum. Now, I will say that the console sold a lot better outside of the United States, and part of this was because the company pushed hard to ensure that consoles would make it into the global market. By the time the console dropped in Europe, for example, there were many more games to play and it had a much better release. Also, I find this funny, they did better in Asia because the 3DO handled streaming digital media very well. Porn was apparently very common on CDs at the time in Asia, but it was harder to get pornography in the US in CD format. So there were all these consoles being bought in Asia just so that people could watch their their fancy pornography on CDs. The influence of porn is very underestimated. <laughs> it really is. Porn drives so much. <laughs> it really does. So uh, give me like an estimate. How much of the internet is porn? It's, I don't know. So it's like 90. Nine, like 19? No, 90. 90%? <laughs> yeah, maybe 99. 99%? What the fuck? It's all porn. It's, all, it's always porn. was. Always was. <laughs> <laughs> So, (laughs) for their final push, 
They released a ton of good games in this time, perhaps the best for the platform. One of them that really stuck out to me was a Warhammer 40k first-person shooter based on the board game Space Hulk. Sick. It was really cool to check it out. It was apparently really difficult, though. Um, the videos I watched of it were people who were like, yeah, I had to play this with cheats just to even finish it because it's insanely difficult. Like bad difficult or just difficult difficult? Probably bad um, difficult. I'm going to say difficult, difficult, but I haven't played it, so I don't know. Okay. Um, there were other games at the time. Um, one was called Killing Time. One was called Blade Force. These games were really popular. There was a game called Return Fire that came out that Trip says is still one of his personal favorites. I mentioned earlier, Crystal Dynamics made the game Crash and Burn that got packed into with the console. Now, around this time, they also made a side-scrolling platformer called Gex, which was released in 1995. Have you heard of this game? I do not think so. Okay, so I know Gex, but I'll talk about that in a minute. You play as an anthropomorphic gecko. I do know this game. The character was made to try and compete with mascots like Sonic and Mario. And he, he had this whole TV thing going on, right? You would jump into TVs to go to different levels. Yep, you're probably thinking of the PlayStation version. Yes, I am. 3D, mm-hmm. right? Okay, yeah. So um, Gex was originally a 3DO game, Whoa. and then it had a PlayStation port later, and then all games they made in the series later were on the PlayStation. I did not know that. I thought it was just another failed PlayStation mascot. No, it was actually an attempt to make a mascot that could be on the 3DO that people would identify with. Cool. And he was like this smarmy little shithead who would say things like, let's open up a kid, a whoop ass, or, you know, like other stupid things. Yeah, right? He, he dress up as different TV characters and mimic them. Yeah. Right, right. And so anyway, uh, it ended up getting packed in. It was packed in with the Panasonic version of the console for a bit. And it got really good reviews. Cool. Now, what hurt these releases were the fact that they were releasing in the summer, nine months after the console's release, six months after the holidays when a lot of game purchases were being made. And, um, you know, some of these games were being played at, you know, not only being made for the 3DO, but then getting ported to the PlayStation. Um, although in a lot of cases, the PlayStation port were like ports were a lot worse from what I read. Mm-hmm. Um, many of the artists who had worked, um, developing games for both consoles complained that the memory management of the PlayStation was very inflexible compared to that of the 3DO. And it made development very hard. But ultimately, even good games were too late to save the 3DO. As 1995 wore on, the company was in a weird place. Their revenue from the previous year had tripled, but they were still losing money. The PlayStation had become, in many ways, the de facto face of the next gen. So, in 1995, the 3DO company announces the successor to the 3DO. It would be called the M2. First, it was announced as an add-on to the 3DO that would be a 64-bit upgrade, but then eventually it was spoken about as a console of its own with much better hardware. The designs ended up being sold to Matsuhita, Matsu, no, I'm sorry, Matsushita, I probably just messed that up again, for $100 million with the hope that they would produce the console. Apparently, that $100 million sale of the design for the M2 was the first fiscal quarter that the 3DO ever made a profit. Oh. Well, at least that worked out. (laughs) They also won 
1995 European Computer Trade Show Award for Best Hardware, so that was a boost for the company. But by 1996, the writing was on the wall. Games that were to be released were suddenly canceled, like the 3DO release of Mortal Kombat 3. Doom was released for the console, but was plagued with horrible development issues and was considered to be the worst Doom port of all time. Apparently, there was talk of a version of Metal Gear Solid that would have come out for the 3DO, but that never materialized either. So in 1996, production was halted for the 3DO, and the company shifted their focus to making software for other consoles, including the PlayStation. Uh. Yep, that's how it goes, right? Fans held out hope that the M2 would put the 3DO back on the market, and there was some limited fanfare when Trip showed off prototypes at E3 that year. But by 1997, the console didn't make an appearance at the show. Rumors swelled that developers had begun to bail. By the beginning of 1997, Matsushita's president spoke about how the 64-bit gaming market was already crowded, and that it would be hard to break into the market at present, especially after the Nintendo 64 released at the end of 1996. Sony and Nintendo had really been killing it in the previous year, with a slew of titles like Final Fantasy VII, Tekken Three, Resident Evil, Tomb Raider, Super Mario 64. There just was not a point from a business perspective for them to put their company on the line to try to make a new console. Dude, no, just try to just think of these games. It's impossible right? to compete with that. I mean, think of the fucking staying powder, or staying power, <laughs> rather. <laughs> the staying powder. The staying power that those consoles have, right? Like, all of them still exist today in, in some form or another as a series. So, Trip tries to pitch the M2 to Sega, but the talks fell through when Sega claimed they wanted the M2 to be an exclusive Sega console. In 1997, 3DO sold off all of their hardware business to Samsung for $20 million. The 3DO would never make hardware again. The company continued on for a while producing software. Some of their biggest hits you've probably heard of, including the Army Men games and the Might and Magic series. Sweet. They also published one of the first 3DO MMOs of this time called Meridian 59. Eventually, though, the company folded. They declared bankruptcy in 2003. Most of their titles were sold off to their rivals, particularly Ubisoft, though Trip apparently used some of his own money to buy up some of the company's old brands that he wanted. Just and for that was the end of the 3DO. Just for old time's sake. I'm not sure what he wanted to do with them. I think maybe he wanted to control the um, IP of the games. Maybe mm. it was ones that he had, you know, a lot of influence over. I'm not really sure. Some ominous villain move that we will find out in a few years. <laughs> and then Trip Hawkins began his quest to take over the world using old 3DO IP from the mid 90s. <laughs> Nobody saw it coming. Never saw it coming. <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's do some wrap up here. There's a lot. I have a lot to wrap up. So that was the the end of the 3DO. And so let's unpack both of the episodes that we that we worked on here. Yeah. So I want I want to talk about all the people who of, of importance who were involved in our story. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about all the people first, and we're going to circle back around to the 3DO at the end. Okay. So RJ Michael went on to work at various gaming companies. He even founded one called Glassworks in the late 90s, though I think that's defunct. He wrote some books, so he became an author, mostly fiction. And if my information is correct, he is currently the director of games at Google. 
Now, I'm not sure what happened to Dave Needle. There's a lot less information about Dave. We do know that he worked in the industry for a while after he left the company, but unfortunately, we do know that Dave Needle passed away in 2016 at the age of 68. Mm -hmm. Trip Hawkins. Trip created a mobile company called Digital Chocolate in 2003. The company was focused on making games for handheld devices like PDAs, cell phones, tablets, that kind of stuff. In 2005, Hawkins was inducted into the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame. He was the eighth person to ever be inducted. Hawkins stayed at Digital Chocolate until 2012, at which point he stepped down. That same year, he co-founded a company called If You Can Company. I guess it was some kind of like game subscription service for kids. I had difficulty finding a lot about this company, and it looked like they stopped tweeting in like 2015. So like, I'm guessing they're not a thing anymore. Probably, yeah. Now, what I do know is that um, he occasionally is on the board for a few different companies. I also think that he has, um, from what I had read, he has moved into teaching, and he is now a professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Cool. That makes sense. He has a lot of wisdom to share, probably. Yeah. So what does Tripp think about all of this? One asked if he has any regrets or if he had wished to stay at EA. I do. I do. I mean, honestly, for me, it was very much a family business. I had always imagined being like Walt Disney and just founding my company and staying with my company my entire life. And I didn't really plan to leave. Well, yeah, I think it's good that he didn't turn out like Walt Disney, but that would be getting too much into Walt Disney. <laughs> That's completely fair. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I still respect him for the choice that he made about leaving EA behind. So Tripp and his old friend Bing Gordon are no longer on speaking terms. I guess that when Hawkins left the company, Gordon stayed on at EA all the way up until 2008, and neither of them speak about why they won't communicate anymore, but the assumed answer is that Hawkins is still upset about what went down at EA and how he was treated afterward. There are also some accusations internally that EA's leadership tried to tone down Tripp's role in creating the company and started shifting to giving Bing Gordon more credit. Others who were at the company during those days claim that Bing took a lot of credit that maybe he didn't particularly deserve. Hawkins had some choice words about him. <laughs> Bing is a really ingenious opportunist. He can always smell the money. I think he just knew if he jumped on my back, it would get him somewhere. Uh, that sounds like a lot of burned ground to cover. <laughs> it does. I'm not even going to wade into that. Yeah, let's, let's, let's just... <laughs> keep a one mile radius from that just don't even don't even look at it <laughs> so bing however um he's he's big in the world of like silicon valley finance um he's a partner for kleiner perkins caulfield and buyers he has a board seat on companies like amazon and zynga so he's still doing stuff he's out there making money larry probst uh trips replacement mm -hmm. larry is still the head of EA after all these years. He is the biggest shareholder of EA, and he controls most of the company in that regard. He is also on the board of a few cancer research groups, and one of his claims to fame was that he was chairman of the board of the 2008 U.S. Olympic Committee, and there are a bunch of pictures of him sitting and chatting with Vladimir Putin at the Olympic Games and chatting. 
I also know that he has done some work with um, some international relations groups over the years too. Cool. So Larry's still in the industry. He's just doing a lot of different shit now today. Mm-hmm. So especially, so let's talk about the legacy of EA, especially in the early days, a huge amount of companies like really copied EA's model, mostly just because of their success. And, and the, you know, what, trip put into place really set the standard for gaming companies going forward and if we talk about ea they are one of the most successful gaming companies in the world yes today they own and produce some of the largest and 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 most marketed brands ever right fifa star wars uh mass effect madden dragon age battlefield they need for speed um you know they own a lot of the big name shit that we think of as um you know, influencing gaming culture. One thing, not not to go into further with EA bashing, but wasn't EA voted worst company ever in the year of the BP oil spill? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's how angry well, people are at this company. Pause on that real fast. We'll, we will absolutely circle to that in a moment. Um, <laughs> yes. So they are data and metrics driven. Right. And of course they are very profit driven, almost, you know, you know, let's just talk about it now. Let's not circle around. They have been voted the worst company in America multiple times. And, and, you know, (laughs) I will say, I don't know that they deserve that title when compared to the absolutely horrific shit that other companies get up to. Right. You could, you can, I can name two companies that have done human atrocities within a heartbeat EA, does not sure. de- EA just does not deserve this title but they have been so ingrained as an evil company in the collective gamer zeitgeist yeah. right that yeah. like that's what they get and you know a larger portion of the of the population plays games these days and when you get to know ea and you know you get to have that experience <laughs> so and you know i will say like Compared to the days of old, they are much more conservative in in their choices of games that they publish and what they do. And, you know, this was alluded to earlier in the episode, but, um, you know, this when you mess up on such a massive level, it sends ripples throughout the entire industry. I mean, we, we joked about this last time, right? But, like, think about what went down with Star Wars Battlefront. I think the post that they made about why they had shitty loot box systems is the most downvoted post on Reddit ever. Um, and that phrase, like, you know, we wanted to give gamers a sense of pride and accomplishment is like part of memes now to make fun of companies that fuck over gamers. Like, like, like it, it, it is ingrained as so shitty that it's a meme. Right. Yeah. Also, they have become kind of the representative of these big gaming companies that have lost the connection to their base. It's true. Um, as Trip put it. It became kind of a factory. They got to be pretty good at cranking out EA sports games. Man, they got good at that. But they really didn't do much of anything else, did they? (laughs) And so, you know, he talks about how after he left, right, like EA became, you know, run by the suits. and, And he says that, like, they didn't really have strategic direction. And that when they had once been on the cutting edge of the industry, they really struggled to handle new tech like the internet or mobile platforms. They underestimated consoles that came out such as the Wii and it took them forever to get games on there. Quote, there were all kinds of buses that they just plain missed. I was looking from a distance going, how'd they miss that? It's the suits. 
They're not product guys. They don't have the same passion or love for games intrinsically. And I would also say, like, you know, let's not forget EA's attempt to leverage their brand loyalty as much as they can. I mean, the Origin launcher is really just a way to rival Steam, although they did recently repartner with Steam, I guess, because they wanted to, like, slurp up some of that market again. And, you know, as I mentioned last time, they have a really shitty reputation because it's almost like they are dedicated to squeezing every single penny that they can get out of people. But on the other hand, why are they so powerful? Because, you know, EA makes games people want to fucking play. If people didn't buy shit from EA, they wouldn't be in business. But on the other hand, (laughs) to go back and forth, right? Like, you can't fucking escape EA, especially when they bring out, like, this big stack of fuck you money and just buy up your company, right? So, like, I think about Bioware. So... Bioware uh, made Mass Effect 1 and it fucking blew me away. And I I love Mass Effect 2, but you could start to see EA's tendrils come in where suddenly there's very important characters to the story that you have to pay $10 to get for a DLC, right? And so like, you know, I could talk shit on EA all day and what they did and how they buy up companies and absorb their creative goo and then cast them aside. But like, I will say that we can talk shit on modern EA, but I think that some of these precursors were there even when Hawkins was around. And so I I don't know that he's really absolved of sin here. You know, if we think back to the previous episode when he's like calling Europe on his car phone in the late eighties and bitching at them about productivity, right? Like even he had a bit of a disconnect, even though he was still part of the leader of the company when they fucked over the populist guys. Um, It's true. This, this did not start with Probst, but it started with him. Yeah. Gordon, Bing Gordon, when he looks back, you know, he talks about Hawkins being there and he's like, uh, you know, I'm paraphrasing him here, but essentially that Hawkins's time was probably coming to an end anyway, even without the 3DO. In the way that the company was scaling, Larry was just way better at large scale management stuff than, than Trip was. One thing Hawkins talks about moving forward regarding the market, right? Like the modern day market is that you know, the, the market is trending in a direction that we may not be able to stop. So here's a quote from him. You can love it or hate it, but in reality, the market is shifting to mobile, which is, of course, the largest population of devices and the biggest market. That being the case, since free-to-play is the absolute standard for mobile, microtransactions are here to stay and will become bigger and more comprehensive, and the model will be increasingly adopted in PC and console games. One indicator of that is that in February of 2019, EA released both Apex Legends and Anthem, two quadruple-A console PC games. One was set up as free-to-play. The other was $60 up front. Which one is still around? Okay, so let's wrap up the 3DO, and then we'll we'll give our final comments here. Here's my hot take on the 3DO. What a fucking cool machine for the time, right? I'm injecting my excitement in here because like it did so many things that were very innovative, right? Like you could, you could watch movies on the console. Like that's really standard today, but like, can you imagine like, oh, I could watch a movie on my, on my SNES, right? You couldn't. It sought out Hollywood and tried to get them involved in games. It had actual 3D graphics. The controllers were innovative, even if they were kind of clunky. You, you know, you could chain them together in that weird way. Um, the internal systems were great. 
developers had a great relationship with the company. You know, it just it set a lot of standards that we expect from modern consoles. But there were a lot of things that killed the 3DO, and we could point to many of them. The success of the PlayStation is probably top of the list. Um, the strange falling out with EA is up there too. Um, their desire to support Sony over the 3DO really took a lot of wind out of the market. Um, because some of the tech was ahead of its time, you know, that was a good and bad thing. And and while the collective internet really likes to make these clickbaity articles about the $699 price tag, I will say, in defense, it came down pretty fast, fast, especially when you compared it to the price of a PC, or even like a fucking high-end CD player at the time, right? Like the price was a steal. With a, you know, a PC with a CD-ROM drive, you could play 3D games easily double the price. Um, and then as the console aged, you know, the price came to be comparable to that of like the Sega Saturn or the PlayStation anyway. And like one thing I didn't ask, the games were cheaper for it, right? Um, I, you know, I never really got a good answer on that, but I think he wanted developers to be able to charge their own prices. And I think that they did. Okay. Because they didn't do the blades, the, the raisin blades model thing. So they probably right. didn't have to charge as much on the games. Right. So you could theoretically get more games in more hands. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And trip, you know, trip thinks a lot of it's just bad timing. The long wait between game releases made sales really hard, which caused a lot of developers to leave, you know, um, if it had all been there at launch, the 3DO could have been a much stronger competitor to Sony and might have even taken over the market. But I will say, you know, interestingly, the game industry today includes a lot of what Trip imagined it to be, right? Like it is, it, it, it in some ways has become this world he wanted. Um, you know, game developers, um, here's an article I found about that just mentioned it. Quote, game developers are receiving unprecedented personal branding and earning power. Open platforms represent a valid and vibrant alternative to consoles. Games are widely viewed as emotionally fulfilling art. So, you know, the 3DO, it did accomplish a lot of its design goals too. And it made the console that they wanted, but it just couldn't compete. And, you know, Hawkins, he still really laments over what could have been. And he goes back and forth over the current state of things. Um, here's another a quick quote. But once they became separate companies, EA essentially traded in their 3DO position for more favorable terms with Sony. That produced a pretty good decade for them. But unfortunately, I think that was kind of the end as far as the industry goes. That was the end of developers or publishers being able to stand on their own and have freedom and respect to platforms. It's always been a concern of mine and should be a concern to every developer. Anybody who actually cares about making software or using software, we're all just much better off if it's an open market and there's free competition. Closed platforms cause a lot of problems. Yeah, it's a good ending quote. And it's also what he what he still kept from the the first days of video game development, where it was all That's about true. being a free-spirited community where everybody can do whatever they want for whatever they want. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, he does say in retrospect, um, I read, you know, some stuff where he said in retrospect that like, you know, there really wasn't much he could have done differently. You know, Sony had this awesome piece of hardware. They offered it at prices that were unbeatable. They had financial backing that was like 20 times what the 3DO had. Um, you know, he, he, he said something like, well, if Sony had screwed up, it would have been a much more interesting fight. Um, you know, and, and you know, I have a little bit more here that I guess I could, I could say, you know, my final take on it is this, that. The 3DO is often put on these lists of consoles that failed, and and people point to it as this 
expensive console that nobody wanted. But what I see out of this, and you know, my own personal take is, you know, here's this company that had a vision and they realized that vision when a lot of other companies fell by the wayside. You know, it it, it took that vision, it made it into reality, but the it was the industry that wasn't prepared for it. I mean, like, look at what we have today. Modern consoles, I guess, with I don't know, the exception of the Switch, um, are, are like multimedia players, right? Like yep. Andrea and I used to watch Netflix through our Xbox. And so while the 3DO didn't make it, uh, the ideas did. And I, and I really think they changed the industry for the, for the better. And so I have, a, I have a quote here that we can, we can let Trip have the last word and then I'll ask you for your thoughts. Yep. Quote, <clears throat> I think it was a catalyst for a lot of constructive changes in the game industry that really opened up a renaissance period for the industry to flourish. I would hope that people will remember it a little bit like the King Arthur story. Some good people with the right intentions were courageous enough to try to do the right thing for the right regions, uh, reasons, and that ended up leading to some very positive things that evolved in the games industry, even though on its own terms, it wasn't successful. And we all know what happened to King Arthur. So what do you think about all this, Docs? What a weird quote. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's classic Trip Hawkins. It is classic Trip Hawkins. Just, just start goblin words and they sound <laughs> suave and sweet and you don't really think about them you're just like you're either gullible and think like mm, that's an interesting point on this maybe he is like king arthur or you're like why are you comparing yourself to this dude <laughs> king from ancient avalon <laughs> what's happening <laughs> um but I see the point, well, I and I'm really yeah, I know what he means. I mean that he tried to do something noble. What was his first idea, and um, right in the end was ultimately failed. I'm really happy to have heard the story about EA because I was always interested in it, but I was always too afraid to look it up. And it's so so neat that this is interconnected to the 3DO in such a way that you were forced to tell the story. I think I have nothing to add here except that I'm I'm still conflicted about Trip Hawkins. And I'm, I'm and I'm not conflicted about Probst. I'm I'm just conflicted about Hawkins because I'm not sure if he's just shifting the blame on other people, even though he has more responsibility than he claims to have. It's really difficult to say. And maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's just about being aware of how this happened, and how one can make consumer choices about if I support mm. a company like that. I think that this is so. When I was telling. Um, my fiance about this particular episode. Um, as I was doing all this research, I was telling her stories. We go, we go for walks every day. Um, and on these walks, I like to tell her these stories. So she, she very rarely will listen to the podcast. And she was like, this feels like the end of season one of a show, right? Like you're bringing in all of these disparate pieces together to tell this crazy story about this like huge company that, influences the gaming market even today right mm -hmm. and um you know it was very fascinating to me when i was looking this up um you know docs will very rightfully so give me a bunch of shit for how how crazy some of these stories get right but like when i opened a book right i opened up this book that docs and i read we sometimes are looking for story ideas i was like all right i don't fucking know anything about the 3do let's start here and it was like trip hawkins you know, president of 3DO. And I'm like, oh, okay. I've used a quote by that guy in a couple of episodes. Who, who the fuck is this guy? And I go and look him up and it's like, Trip Hawkins, founder of Electronic Arts. 
then I was like, Oof. uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and all of a sudden you find yourself in a rabbit hole and you can't get out. And you're like, shit, it's true. not again. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why this took me like two months, right? Like I just kept finding more and more shit. And I just was like, I have to keep... I. This is a story that we have been waiting to tell, even if we didn't quite realize it was a story we had been waiting to tell about how video games became uh, to be seen as art. Yep. And I won't say that it was 100% Trip Hawkins, but boy, did that guy push really hard to say that video games are a form of artistic expression and that we should treat developers like artists. Yes. So... Well, Docs, I appreciate your time, and I appreciate you listening to um, my very lengthy two-parter story. And I appreciate um, your very thorough preparation of this endeavor. There are so many sources that I used for this that they will go up. Um, for this and the last episode, um, they all sort of blend together. They will go up um, in the episode description. I will say a couple that I would look into. The the Probably the best place to go to read a story of this is there's a Polygon article called how ea lost its soul um it's all it's it's very lengthy um and in multiple parts so how ea lost its soul um also of course i looked through um the ultimate history of video games by stephen kent um we talk about that a lot and then just a zillion different websites that i pulled from to get quotes and context and things like that sweet so okay well, um, thanks to Quad Laser for making our music. Thanks to all of you out there who listen to our stories. Um, thanks for to Darko to supporting our web hosting services that we use to provide you with our episodes. All right. Well, that's it for us. Stay safe out there. If you haven't gotten your first and or second vaccine shot, go and do so so that maybe we can all have lives again. Yeah, get shift. And yeah, get shivved, man. Um, <laughs> go get shivved up. Uh, and uh, we'll, you know, stay safe and we'll all talk to you soon. Bye.